Well, such a good weekend so far, and uh, thank you for starting your Sunday off here. I know that this is a great day to go to the beach. Anyone headed there after church? I think I might do that. So, uh, But I'm confident that the Lord is going to bless our morning together. And, um, you know, last Sunday, which was just it was one of those Sundays where the Lord really met with us um, after the service, our uh, pastors got together and we we just spent a time praying and really just praying in thankfulness for all that God is doing in this church. And we are really blessed to see um, this church plant begin so strong in the Lord and in community. Uh, the fellowship is just off the charts. And, um, and also just sensing from last week's message that there really is a hunger and a thirst among uh, among you, among God's people. And we want to keep going after Jesus. We want to keep seeking him together. And so thank you for joining us again this Sunday. Um, you know, no familiarity here, right? We're, uh, we're going to press into faith in Jesus and trust that he's got good things in store for us. So I love that song that we sang today, None But Jesus. We don't want anything more than Jesus. We don't want anything less than Jesus. We want him. And, uh, and we can expect that. And so I've been praying all week for you, that you would be walking in the power and the authority that you've been given in Jesus Christ, that you would live a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And, um, and because you have been commissioned with the gospel and empowered by the Holy Spirit, that uh, in your day-to-day life, you would be making a difference for the kingdom of God. And so today, as we get this great opportunity to gather together collectively um, before we go back and scatter out into our weekly lives, um, I just pray that God would meet us mightily here. And you know that it's our desire as a church, and, and just as a pastor, my desire for you is that you would know the real Jesus, and that every single time that you come to church, you know that you can bring the real you to the real Jesus, that uh, just be honest before him each time we gather. And so, uh, as we said earlier, that if we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. So, can't we have that wonderful expectation today that God's going to meet us, especially because we're opening his word. So you can open up your Bible to Mark chapter 6. That's where we'll be today. Let me just pray and uh, we'll get right into the scriptures today. Lord God, thank you so much that you are slow to anger, that you are abounding in steadfast love. Lord, thank you that you have... Um, breathed your spirit into this place and it's by your spirit lord that we could even know you and confess you jesus god i pray that your spirit would be at work today among your people lord to draw them to jesus to exalt his name and 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 the salvation that we have in him and lord god we just ask lord that today for any of us maybe just all of us we would just confess lord our need for you and say will we turn from sin turn toward jesus We thank you, Lord, that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance as we talk about that today. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. So last week, we briefly touched on Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 13, and kind of as a way of introduction, I wanted to kind of look and glance back at a few things that we saw there. We've seen so far in the gospel of Mark, as Jesus has been doing mighty works that he has Uh, authority over sickness. He has authority over demons. He has authority over death. And these miracles that Jesus was doing, he was doing because he brought the kingdom of God to the earth. 
And see, that's what Jesus did, is when he came to earth, he brought his dominion, and that is what kingdom means. Kingdom simply means wherever the king is ruling and reigning. And so Jesus, bringing his kingship to the earth, um, was establishing that dominion throughout the region of Galilee and the various surrounding regions. We've seen as he has plundered the kingdom of darkness and he's been making transfers into the kingdom of light, Jesus is just, he's charging. He's going for it. And people are responding. But not everybody responds to Jesus, and we know that. But Jesus When he came to earth, he didn't desire to do his work alone. He wanted it to be done by people, people that are called by his name. And he calls his 12 disciples to himself, and it says that he gave them authority. And they went out and they did the things that Jesus did. So John chapter 20, verse 21, we know that verse that says, As the Father sent me, so I send you. So as the Father sent Jesus to do all these wonderful, mighty works, Jesus is now sending his disciples to do those same things. And the disciples are going out, and they're they're doing what Jesus has called them to do. They're doing his work. And we see in verses 12 through 13 of Mark chapter 6 that the few things that they were called to do. First, they were called to proclaim that people should repent. Now, What that means, what repentance means is simply that people would change their minds about how they're living and that they would turn to sin and turn toward Jesus. It's a change of mind that results in a change of action. And the Bible tells us that when we repent, refreshment comes into our lives. Does anybody need a little bit of refreshment? One of the great ways to be refreshed in the Lord is to turn away from the things that distract us from God and to turn toward God, and he will refresh us. And then they were told to, if necessary, heal the sick and cast out demons. They were to heal the sick by the laying on of hands and praying to a God in heaven who hears their prayers and is compassionate and merciful to those who are in need. They were to cast out demons in the name and the authority of Jesus because Jesus is greater than the devil. And so Jesus sends them out, and he sent them out in a particular kind of method. says that he sent them out two by two, and they went throughout various towns and villages. Now, there's probably several reasons for why Jesus used that method, why he sent them out in pairs. But I'll just give you one reason for why I think Jesus sent them out in pairs. It's because of this. Ministry is way more fun and way more effective when you're doing it together. You know, ministry is not meant to be done alone or in isolation. It's meant to be done in community and togetherness. And even as Ben Kai was just saying is that uh, we have ministry to do as a church and, and we want to do it with you. We want to, to do it together. You know, when we get here at 8 o'clock in the morning and set up for Sunday, I, I happen to really enjoy hanging out with the people that serve the Lord together here and doing ministry with the people around you, with your friends and with your family and with those that are close to you, it's so much fun. And and doing it with people is effective, not only effective for others, but effective in your own life. When you enter into that kind of community of service, then they were to go out, right? The disciples, as they were sent out, they were to trust God for the provision that he would bring to them. That they weren't supposed to take 
any sort of excess, not be weighed down with all kinds of things that they would kind of bring along. They were to have this simple living of daily trusting that God would provide for their every need. And so as they went into people's homes, they were given a place to sleep and, and something to eat. And now th- this, this method that Jesus used, it, it, it was causing in the disciples a, a sense of trust and reliance upon God to help them in the work. And, and if I could just speak for a moment into this, is that this really speaks about provision. God providing um, materially and financially for the needs of the disciples. And just as a church, I, I want to say um, thank you for the ways that you have been generous to this new church, the way that you've supported the work and the ministry that's taking place here. I'm humbled by it. I'm thankful for the way that you partnership Uh, with us in the gospel, and so thank you for those who give faithfully to that. Then they were to go out, and they were to do the things that they were doing in Jesus's name, and the disciples did this, and they came back stoked. They were absolutely rejoicing. Why? Because they saw results. They came back to Jesus, and like, Jesus, we totally spoke your name, and like demons fled, and it was amazing. And you remember what Jesus said to his disciples as they came back rejoicing at the results of being sent out in his power and authority. He said, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that you have your names written in heaven. And this was to say, you know, Jesus saying to them that we should be absolutely stoked that we are saved. Can I use that word stoked? We should be absolutely stoked That we are saved. Because listen, guys, if we are stoked that we are saved, then it will mean that we will want others to be saved as well. See, when we are stoked, we will be humbled and dependent and others focused, realizing that the gift that we have been given as God's redeemed, that we would want to go and tell others about that. Because we are so filled, overflowing, and joyful at the salvation that has been brought to us. And so we have been saved. We have been empowered now by the Spirit of God to go and with the authority of Christ tell other people about the gospel. Because, I mean, how are you saved? Somebody had to tell you, right? I mean, I don't, I, don't know how other pe- I don't know how people get saved. I mean, there's definitely times when God uses some dream or revelation or some crazy circumstance to bring a person to salvation. But the normal way that people get saved is... Somebody tells them about Jesus and and declares the gospel to them and and leads them to a place of turning to Jesus and trusting in him. And so I know that when I was saved, it's because people told me about Jesus. And probably the testimony for you is the same thing. And so if people get saved by other people telling them about Jesus, then that is our work to do. Jesus said that the fields are white unto harvest. Lift up your eyes. But then he said, but the laborers are few. And this is where we're going to focus in on for just a moment here, you guys, is that as a church, we are praying for there to be a great move of God's spirit in in this area, in this region just as the name of Jesus was spreading out through the regions of Galilee and beyond, 
we are praying for a great movement of Jesus to spread. And the primary way in which that happens is through believers in Jesus Christ being empowered and boldly declaring the good news of Jesus Christ, telling others about Jesus. See, if we have been saved, and if we have been set apart, then we must boldly declare the wonderful news of our salvation so that others can taste and see that God is good. Isn't this our responsibility and privilege, church? Amen? Can I get an amen? Amen. It is our responsibility and privilege. You know, our vision here at Calvary Chapel Palace Verdes is to make Jesus known. And the practice to do that is evangelism and missions. So we're going to think about evangelism just for a moment, and it can take on many different forms. For the disciples here, as they went out, they went out two by twos. That's a particular method. I had a friend last Sunday who went out after church and did street evangelism, and that's a way to do evangelism. For you, it might be what some people called frangelism, friendship evangelism. Right, where you make friends, and as you develop these relationships, you begin to tell them about, about Jesus. I, I don't really know the method that you want to use for evangelism, but what I do know, and what really matters, is that we're telling people about Jesus. It doesn't matter the method, just as long as we are, by our lives, demonstrating the life of Jesus, and with our words, boldly opening our mouth to declare the mysteries of the gospel with our lives demonstrating, and with our words speaking. And that's how evangelism happens. Whatever the form or functions, whatever way that you do that is cool, but that is our calling, that is our commission. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been commissioned to do this. And no one here is that special someone that God has excluded from that commission. Like, like you're not God's special, well, for you, no, you don't have to do that work. That's fine. We'll leave it to everybody else. You don't have to do that. We are all called to the work of evangelism. No one has an exception from this. So we're supposed to go, to go, right? That's, that's the command of the Great Commission. Go and then show and tell Jesus. Even kindergartners know what show and tell is, right? We can show and tell Jesus. Now, why does God use this method of evangelism? Why? I mean, he could have used any other way to get the gospel to spread throughout all the nations. But why is it that God chose this way of discipleship, going and making disciples? Well, because if you understand the math, um, discipleship is exponential. Now, exponential just simply means that it builds upon itself. So let me, let me just walk you through this really fast. I'm not so good at math, so bear with me if I mess up on the numbers here real fast. But if two people each go tell two people, what is that? Four. And if those four people each go and tell two people, what's that? Eight. Now if those eight people go tell two people, that's 16. Then you got 32, then 64, 128, 256, 512, 1024. And if every single person, every single day, were to just simply tell two other people about Jesus, how many days would it take for the 65,000 people on the Palos Verdes Peninsula to hear the name of Jesus? 
16 days. Just 16 days. Now, I, I get that. That's like, I'm using this analogy, and that, that's supposed to kind of hit you with the punch, like, wow, 16 days, that's doable. But it, it's doable if we are all taking our responsibility of each person doing our work of being a witness, of doing evangelism, because that's how the world gets turned upside down. That's how the gospel spreads like wildfire. And I'll tell you that that's what we've been commissioned for. Now, we, we don't want to leave that to somebody else. We need to take our part in that. Now, I often hear objections to this in my own heart and from others of people saying, well, I'm not an evangelist, right? Like, easy for you to say, you're a pastor, you can go and share about Jesus, but for me, I'm, I'm not a, an evangelist. Now, I would agree that there are people that are more particularly gifted for this, where they have what the Bible would call a gift of evangelism, and yet, all Christians are still called to do this. See, some people might have the gift of generosity, but all Christians are called to be generous, right? Some people might have the gift of faith, but all Christians are certainly called to have faith. Some people might have the gift of mercy, but all Christians are to be merciful. I, I think you get the point, right? Is that we're all called to this. As followers of Christ, we are sent to testify him, testify about him to people that don't know him. That is our work to do, and it's not for just a select group of people. We're called to do this, and let me remind you, we're called to do this together. Doing ministry together is way more fun and way more fruitful. And so, get involved. Open your mouth as you ought to speak the gospel. You know, we have um, pastors who serve here in this church, Pastor Ben and Ben Kai and Rob. And what I love about these guys is that they, they work full, full job, full-time jobs. They're, they're bivocational, you know. Um, ben is a surgeon by day, pastor by night. <laughs> and, and Ben Kai and Rob, they're lawyers. And I love to sit and listen to the ways in which these men in their vocations just boldly testify about Jesus. If you ever want to have an opportunity to sit with any of them and just hear about um, how they have learned real simple lessons of what it looks like to share Jesus in, in their vocation, it's, it's awesome just to hear that. But look, I understand the fear and the apprehension that comes as you hear me say this. You're like, yeah, I agree. I have a responsibility. And yeah, that's certainly a privilege to share about Jesus. And I'm stoked about my salvation, but I'm a little scared to share it with others. Like I fully understand the apprehensions because I have those same apprehensions in my own heart. Because oftentimes, what we fear is the fear of rejection or persecution. We fear what somebody might think about us if we open our mouth and speak the name of Jesus boldly. We don't want to push other people away because we are speaking the name of Christ. And see, Jesus understa understands and still understands these apprehensions that his disciples face. And yet, in those apprehensions, Jesus still wants to move his disciples outside of their comfort. He basically said, you know, 
The only thing you can take as you go two by two is an extra pair of underwear and some sandals. <laughs> Everything else, you need to trust me, right? And that, that's what we're called to do. As commissioned disciples, we're meant to trust God. Now, when you do this, when you share the gospel with some people, you need to realize that the Bible says that for some, it will be the aroma of life leading to life. They'll receive it. You'll get to lead somebody to Christ. And yet for others, it is like an aroma of death that leads to death. They're going to hate it. They won't want that in their presence. And yet Jesus told us that when we do this and that there are people who will not accept this message, he told us to shake the dust from the soles of our feet, which is simply a way of saying, don't sweat the small stuff. <laughs> because if they hated our master, what should we expect as his servants? See, if we will be hated for his name's sake, we need to understand that there's an aspect to that in this calling because the name of Jesus, as it spreads across the world, brings utter transformation. And there are people and there are spiritual forces and powers that do not want transformation. And yet we press in by the kingdom of God to share the gospel. Because when we do that, when we share the gospel, the kingdom of God in its future sense comes that much closer. Amen? Amen. Little introduction on evangelism. Good? Amen. Amen. Now, my confession to you is I don't always do that. I can stand up here and preach a gospel message in front of this crowd and be just fine. Get me out in the streets or whatever or, or in front of my family or something like that. <gasps> Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. I don't stand here today saying I have it all figured out. But see, let me tell you this. If I'm preaching messages that I'm perfectly living out, then my preaching is too low. If I'm preaching messages that Daniel Hendrickson's got all dialed, then I'm preaching too low. So I'm always going to preach up here. And say, hey, church, let's get here. I never want to preach down here where we all walk away being like, we all do that super well. <laughs> because where's the transformation in that? Where's the growth in that? And so let's press on to Jesus. Amen. Amen. Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 14, says this. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Now, how did Jesus' name become known to Herod? People were talking about Jesus, right? People were telling about the things that Jesus was doing. And in the region of Galilee, which is where Herod ruled, people were going on and on about the name of Jesus. There were people that were demonized that were now restored to society. There were people that were sick that are now rejoicing. Blind people were now seeing. Lame people were now walking. Dead people were now living, and there was this buzz, this, you know, Jesus went viral before viral was a thing in Galilee. And his name was spreading. And this man, Herod, Herod, who was a ruler over the region of Galilee, heard about the kingdom of God and how the rule of Jesus was breaking through. 
Now, Herod was part of a notorious political party known as the Herodians. And this Herod that we're talking about is Herod Antipas. He was the son of Herod the Great, and he was placed as the ruler over Galilee at the year 4 BC after his father died, and he ruled there until about 39 AD, which means that this Herod that we're reading about, Herod Antipas, was the political ruler during the time of Jesus in the region of Jesus's main earthly ministry, that is the region of Galilee. So when Herod Antipas When his father, Herod the Great, died in 4 BC, what he did is he divided his kingdom up to his three sons, Archelaus, Antipas, and Philip, and then threw in a fourth dude named Lysanias. He divided his kingdom up into four parts. So this is why when we read in other Gospels that this Herod is called Herod the Tetrarch. Tetrarch meaning ruler of a fourth. So he ruled over fourth of his father's kingdom, which was basically the region of Galilee. So when you're reading your Bible, when you read in Luke 1 and 2 and you read the name Herod, we're talking about Herod the Great, his father. But any other time in the Gospels that you read of the name Herod, it's speaking about this Herod here, Herod Antipas. Mark refers to him as a king, which is interesting because he wasn't really a king if you kind of get down to it takes a little bit of time to explain, but let's just say this guy had some uh, dad issues, okay? Then things got really shady with Herod Antipas because he divorced his wife, and this first wife of his, she was a princess of another king, and so this actually came back to bite Herod in the butt, but um, he divorced her in order to marry the woman that he was having an affair with, who happened to be the wife of his half-brother, Philip. And her name was Herodias. And so, so far we know that Herod's got some serious personal problems, right? He had some real dad issues. He, his intimate relationships were immoral and sensual. He had a really bad group of friends. And he was a corrupt leader who actually was stripped of any kind of real power. And so... This guy, Herod Antipas, hears about Jesus and concern begins to rise. And so let's read verses 14 through 16. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. This is why these powerful miracle or these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, He said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. And so as Jesus continues to be made known, people are trying to figure out who he is exactly. What is his identity? What is his role? And people were thinking that Jesus was John the Baptist. They thought that he was John the Baptist because they saw power at work in him. Now, this was just a superstitious and paranoid thought that King Herod had. He thought that, because he had killed John the Baptist, that John went to some sort of underworld or unseen world, obtained this spiritual power, then was raised from the dead and was coming back to get Herod. And this is obviously not what happened. (laughs) That's simply superstition and paranoia. And so other people are thinking that he's Elijah, 
another prophet who did mighty miracles in the Old Testament. Some thought that um, because Elijah and John had so many similarities, they, they thought that it was one of these guys. But here's the thing. Elijah and John the Baptist, they always pointed to Jesus as the coming Messiah. And so when Jesus came, he wasn't simply another prophet like one of the ones of old. See, Jesus, when he came, he came as the Son of God. The book of Hebrews opens up by saying that in times past, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. So Jesus is an altogether different category. But Herod is all confused and worked up because he's got this guilty conscience for what he did to John the Baptist. Let's read what happened at verses 17 through 20. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and a holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So we already know about Herod's relationship issues, that he divorced his wife to marry his brother Philip's wife. And while this was all going on, John the Baptist spoke out against it. He said it's not lawful for a man to divorce his wife and marry his brother's wife. No, duh. <laughs> and yet, because John, being a prophet, who had a voice into the culture, and who was a righteous and a holy man who feared God, and how he spoke out against these sins and injustices, Herod feared John. See, Herod had this thing inside of him where he liked to listen to the things that John had to say. He liked to hear the truth that John would speak, and yet he was perplexed by it all. He had trouble understanding it because the Bible tells us that the natural man does not understand the spiritual things of God because they must be spiritually discerned. So he's not picking up on all this truth that John is speaking, and yet somehow he's really drawn to what John is saying shows that Herod was one of those leaders who was quite hypocritical. See, what Herod wanted was he wanted good to come upon the region where he ruled. However, in his personal life, he lacked character. His policy and his person didn't match up. And this brought compromise. He found himself in this relationship with this woman named Herodias. Now, Herodias was the granddaughter of Herod the Great. Yeah, you, you heard that right. He was, she was the granddaughter of Herod the Great. So what this would make Herodias is she was uh, first Philip's niece who, when she married him. She married him for political gain and power. Then after divorcing that uncle, she went and married her other uncle, Antipas. So this would make for really bad reality TV shows. And so let's keep reading what happened with John, verse 21 to 23. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. 
And when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to this girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. So you got a birthday party with a lot of bad friends and a lot of alcohol. And Herodias sends her daughter, who we find her name was Salome, into this party to do a dance for her stepdad, which is actually her great uncle or something. Anyways, this young girl, she comes in to this big banquet and party, and she does this exotic dance for her stepdad and his friends. And Herod wants to give Salome this reward for such a great performance. And so he says she can have anything, up to half of his kingdom, which is funny because um, it wasn't really his kingdom to give. (laughs) He was stripped of any power. Uh, I think he was just trying to impress his friends, and I think really it was probably just the alcohol talking. And so he made this vow in front of a lot of really important people saying that he would give this girl up to half his kingdom, but she didn't know what to ask for. So verse 24 to 29, we read, she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? She said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry because of his oaths and his guests. He did not want to break his word to her. Immediately, the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So pretty grim pretty sad story, but isn't this the story of sin and compromise? It's a story of what happens when you only listen to the message of repentance and never have any real repentance in your life. It shows what sin brings when you find yourself in places of foolish compromise. See, Herod was a man who liked to listen to John. He loved the messages of truth. He feared him as a righteous and holy man. But what he got caught up in was this situation that because of his love for sin, he made an unjust decision to kill John the Baptist. See, Herod was a man who heard about Jesus but had wrong ideas about him because he was ridden with a guilty conscience for what he had done. Herod was a man who wanted to be a friend and follower of God, but he couldn't because he was stuck being a friend and a follower of the world. Herod was a man who feared John and had a curiosity about Jesus, but he would not repent. He wouldn't turn from his sin. He was willing to hear the message, but not willing to make a change in the way of his life. And he had all these off beliefs about Jesus, that so many people today come to these strange beliefs about Jesus, and the reason why is because they are often compromised in sin. See, they might think that Jesus is a reincarnation of somebody important. They might think that Jesus was like a prophet, but just like many others. 
or that Jesus was a man who did great things and he was a real ethical person and we should follow his example, or that he was a political ruler who brought great policy to the earth. What it, people have all kinds of off ideas about Jesus and the reason why people have off ideas about Jesus and the reason people aren't able to see him clearly for who he is is because they compromise in sin. And because Herod continued to compromise in sin, and because his guilty conscience, it was blurring his ability to see Jesus, to see the real Jesus. He was seeing him as some sort of risen John the Baptist. So here today, can I just say, listen to these words. Let, Let these words come into your soul and and speak to perhaps that confusion you have in Jesus or to that liking truth and yet not willing to live truth. See, how does someone come to really see Jesus for who he really is? How does somebody actually live a life as a Christian? Bible says you must repent of your sin and repent simply means to turn away by changing your mind which results in a change of action and then to confess your sin and to confess is a great word it means to say the same thing when you confess your sin to Jesus which he is able to forgive your sins by confession you're saying the same thing about your sin that God says about your sin so if it's adultery call it what it is and turn from it If it's stealing, you got to call it what it is and turn from it. If it's lying, call it what it is and turn from it. If it's drunkenness, call it what it is and turn from it. And and I could just list off a bunch of sins and maybe one of them's going to land on you. But but you know what you need to turn from. You know what you need to give to Jesus and have him forgive you and cleanse you of. And so bring that to Jesus. And the Bible says that it's his kindness that draws you to repentance. And when you repent, refreshment will come into your life. And so when we do this, we will receive the grace of God. Guys, sin is costly. Compromise will make you pay a lot. Herod paid a lot for his sin. If you look throughout history, you'll see that the Herodians just continued to make decision after decision of sin and compromise that led to ruin and ultimately the fall of that kingdom. And the same is true today that if we do not turn to Jesus, if we do not live righteous and holy lives before God, how can we expect for any sort of refreshment to come to us, any sort of healing to come to us? And look, John was living this life. And when he spoke, his head ended up on a platter. He lost his life for speaking the truth in love to those who would not repent. Or should I say he lost his life? Did John really lose his life? No. The Bible says that to save your life is to lose it. To lose your life is to save it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? John received his reward. See, it was Herod who had to pay. It was Herod who made a costly decision and put himself in that terrible place. 
And guys, sin will always cost you. And if you're a Christian, if you're currently would profess to be a follower of Jesus, but you're living in ongoing compromised sin, I'll just say that is a miserable way to live a Christian life. I know it from experience. See, because to live compromised in sin as a Christian does a real miserable thing in you. Because what happens is you have just enough of Jesus in you that you can't really enjoy your sin. And then you have just enough sin in you that you can't really enjoy Jesus. So, so you're really kind of just miserable. Because you can't fully enjoy anything. So why don't you just enter into the joy of your Savior? And be refreshed because his life is so much better. And when you lose your life, you will find it. Verse 29, when the disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. And I'll end right here by saying this, is that John and Jesus shared a similar thing and that after their death, their disciples came and took their bodies and laid it in a tomb. However, unlike John, Jesus actually raised from the dead. And so Jesus, by dying on a cross, which was the instrument of capital punishment by the Romans, bearing our guilty shame, covering over our sins because of the blood of his cross, he was then buried. His dead body was laid within a tomb. But three days later, Jesus Christ rose from the dead, conquering sin, death, and the devil once and for all. And when we turn to him in repentance and confession, Jesus covers over us with the blood of his cross, offering us forgiveness, that when you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. So turning from our sin and turning toward Jesus, refreshment can come into your life today. Amen? Amen. And this is the message that we bear and get to proclaim to others. Amen? Amen. Lord Jesus, thank you for this day. We ask, Lord, that as we have heard your word, this good news, this evangelism, God, I pray that no matter what we've done, if our story is as worse as the Herodians, or maybe we're not that close, but we've got all kinds of hidden sin of pride and whatever we have, Lord. You know what we have. We know what we have. And we just pray that today that you would remove that stain of a guilty conscience upon our hearts, Lord, as we would bring the real you to the real Jesus. God, I ask, Lord, today we would be a repentant people so that we might be refreshed by your spirit to go out and proclaim that people as well should repent. Lord, we love you for what you've done, that you did everything in your grace and you lavished it upon us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen, amen.